This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's already midweek and we are careening towards September. Summer is coming to a close. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here today with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Courtney Astolfi. Welcome back, Courtney. Happy to be back. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's another day to talk about all sorts of interesting news. I wonder what we should start with. Well, so I wanted to ask you, what was the feedback on not covering the Ron DeSantis JD Vance rally? Because I know you wrote about it over the weekend, and I'm sure you got some enlightening responses. Actually, I, I you know, I did. I wrote that we're not going to cover it because they had ridiculous rules that they would pick who you could talk to in the audience, which means they were going to give you ardent supporters. You wouldn't get accurate stuff. Um, they had some weird rule where you couldn't interview somebody in their hotel room, which we're still scratching our heads about. Like, what was that about? Um, and then they wanted to own or have rights to any video you might have shot, which we never do that because that makes it look like you're cooperating and coordinating with somebody and you lose your objectivity. So it was like, no way, this is America. You don't infringe on the freedom of the press. We're not coming. And overwhelming uh, positive reaction. You, you did the right thing. Thank you for standing up against this kind of stuff. This is not what our country is about. Interestingly, I, I compared what the policies were to fascism, because that's what mm -hmm. it is. When you start to treat the media like state media, you're, you're moving into fascism. And there are a lot of conservatives that are claiming they're fighting fascism while they're actually trying to make us into a fascist state. I got a bunch of responses from people that thanked me for using the word fascism, saying journalists are not doing this and they need to call it out because that's where we're headed. And they didn't understand the fear of doing that. You know, I heard from some conservatives, very few, who tried to make a false equivalency to White House press conferences where they picked the reporters that asked the questions. That's ridiculous. That mm -hmm. is not anywhere near the same. The organizer reached out to Andrew Tobias, our, our state house reporter, to say, <laughs> this is, I can't even say this with straight face, that DeSantis and Vance had nothing to do with the rules, that the organizer made the rules. Now, that's ridiculous because this was a rally for Vance. If there are rules at a rally for Vance, Vance is responsible for them. And there's no way you could say we did this on our own. If that were true, then DeSantis and Vance should have come out and said, we are aghast that we had these rules. This is fascism. We don't stand for it. We didn't hear a word from them. The oddest thing was this thing went viral yesterday. I don't know why. I, I, I saw some it, it, a lot of traffic coming from Twitter. But the column became our number one story on the site yesterday because of the sharing of it, which was good. You know, it's good to see people having that conversation. What I like the most is when people send a note in on these columns that I write every week and feel like it's a giant albatross. Uh, that 
that it led to a robust conversation in their house, which th- th- there's nothing better to hear because that, that's the whole reason we're doing it. We're trying to spark conversation, to add perspective to conversations. So, um, and just as a personal note, it was really fun to write that one. <laughs> it's just, it's, I feel like we have such a public, obviously we, we inform the public, but then the public feels like they have a real ownership over us too. Like we are their stand in. Right. So I just think these kind of issues hit people very viscerally and very personally, and they feel strongly about them. I, and look, it's very important for us to explain it. It's one thing mm-hmm. to not go. And, and I got to give full credit to Skip Hall, who designs the, the plane dealer. He had the idea of putting in the blank gray box saying, not pictured, or J.D. Vance and Ron DeSantis, which I thought, you know, he said, he goes, you think this is too cheeky? It's like, no, no, that's a great idea. Let's do it. Um, but, but you have to explain what you're doing, which, you know, I laid out each of the rules that they had, that they were imposing and why that that's anti-First Amendment. I mean, these, look, these guys are running to take an oath to uphold the Constitution of America, which bars any messing around with the freedom of the press. Congress mm-hmm. cannot pass laws, and they're abridging the freedom of the press. That's what this was. It's, so, so they want to swear an oath to a Constitution, but they want to violate it left and right. It, it's bad news. These guys are not who they say they are. They are heading toward fascism, and we need to call it out when we see it which we did. So we're getting some attention for it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. It is beyond doubt that First Energy customers lost money because of the utility's inexcusable role in bribing Ohio officials to pass the corrupt House Bill 6, which would have given First Energy well over a billion dollars it did not have coming. So, Lisa, are we, the people that pay our electric bills, ever going to get our refunds? Well, it looks like we are. Um, I got my card, my legal notice in the mail just a couple of days ago. Uh, So the proposed $49 million class action settlement is awaiting approval by Columbus federal judge Edmund Sargas. He's holding a November 9th hearing, so that's probably when it'll be all settled. It's unclear exactly how much customers will receive. So you're automatically opted in. If you were a customer and received services, Uh, you know, between January 1st, 2020 and June 22nd of this year, then you are eligible for this $49 million award. Um, However, if you do accept this payment, you cannot make any future legal claims against First Energy, Energy Harbor, or current and former First Energy executives over the House Bill 6 bribery scandal. So $37.5 million of this proposed settlement will come from First Energy, $11.5 million from Energy Harbor. This would resolve four lawsuits that were filed by customers after the bribery scandal came to light. Customers can also object to the proposed settlement. They have to do that in person or in writing by October 5th. My reservation on this is that we don't know all the details yet of what First Energy did. You now have the federal prosecutor in the southern part of the state trying to stop the civil investigations to really get to the bottom of how many ways they broke the law and how much money of ours that they used illegally. So to settle on an amount, that's a that's a decent amount. I mean, they, they use $60 million for bribery. They're going to have to pay $49 million here. They're already paying the federal government a gigantic sum of money. But without knowing the full details, 
it seems like we might be selling ourselves short. Laura, your reaction yesterday was this isn't enough money. It's, I mean, it's $49 billion for 2 million people. Like, that's not a lot of money. And I don't know what it ended up costing us for all this corruption. When you look at all the bribes and all of the extra fees that we paid and all of, you know, like all this money that was being tossed around so cavalierly was our money. And so how much do they take from us? And it just doesn't seem like we're going to get a lot back. Lisa, in the in the settlement agreement, you, you pointed out that you can opt out of it. But if you opt out of it, all that does is preserve your right to file an individual lawsuit. There wouldn't be another class action lawsuit, right? That's correct. Yes. So you, and as I, as I said, just, it bears repeating. So if you were a customer in this time frame, you were automatically opted into the settlement to opt out. You do have to take, you know, action to do so. Okay. Well, I guess we'll get a few bucks out of it. They'll probably spread it out over 20 electric bills and make it three or four cents a bill. We'll see. It's today in Ohio. Ohio's Republican legislators have a history of putting what they consider to be populist constitutional amendments on the ballot in elections when they want to draw a greater conservative turnout. Courtney, it looks like they have successfully done that again. What did the Ohio ballot board approve for the November ballot on Tuesday? Yeah, these two proposed constitutional amendments are being touted as as law aimed at law and order, like you said, to try and drive turnout in November. Now, let's take a look at issue one. This has to do with cash bail in the state's courts. So this this issue is going to be asking voters whether they want to require courts to factor in public safety when setting cash bail. And essentially, we learned that this is essentially limiting the Ohio Supreme Court's ability to develop courtroom procedures. That's that's standard, that's their standard role, right? And and this measure would take that authority away from the Supreme Court and it would mandate this this public safety factor when setting cash bail. Now it seems somewhat that this is a response to various bail reform efforts the Supreme Court has undertaken in recent years. And one of those efforts does have to do with cash bail. The court has adopted a rule saying defendants have to be released on the least restrictive conditions that'll, you know, reasonably assure that they'll show up to their hearing, protect the safety of of the person, of any person and of the community, and that the person will not obstruct the criminal justice process. So these bail reform rules that the court has moved on in recent years does include this public safety aim. But this this proposed constitutional amendment would take the decision out of their hands. And you can see that it's I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it appears that it's aimed at pushing back against efforts to reduce the use of cash. Yeah, bail in yeah. the system. this is yeah. it's a dog whistle. It's oh, my gosh, these these bail reform laws are putting dangerous people out on the street. And it's preposterous. Interestingly, it's weakening the Supreme Court. But Pat DeWine, the justice and son of the governor who did not recuse himself from his dad's gerrymandering case, is a big proponent of this. It's bizarre that we should everybody should know that this is completely unneeded because there is a process already in existence to have a hearing if the belief is somebody's dangerous they have to do due process they have to have a hearing to hear why they might be a danger to the community and then they can lock them up pre-trial but but the principle here is 
you're innocent until proven guilty. And the purpose of bail is just to make sure you come back. There is no need for this amendment. This is just being done so they can go out and frighten people and say they want to put dangerous people on the street. This is your chance to stop them to draw people out to the to the polls. It's it's bogus, but it's what the Republicans in this state have been doing for years, all the way back to when they put on the amendment to ban gay marriage. What's the other one that they're putting on there? Yeah, then we uh, move to issue two. And this one's, you know, a little more cut and dry. It would bar non-citizens from voting in state and local elections. And and generally you think, hey, non-citizens can't vote. Uh, but we have seen a little bit of development there. Yellow Springs in Southwest Ohio, it's known as a progressive little community. They in 2020 approved a change to their charter that let non-citizens vote on local candidates, local tax issues. And the state is seeking to add to our constitution no ability for local municipalities to do what Yellow Springs did. You know, proponents of this, you know, that's what it's aimed at. But opponents of this say that this could also impact the ability of 17-year-olds to vote in primaries before they turn 18. They're currently allowed to do so. The Secretary of State says, no, that's not a risk here. But opponents say it could mess with the 17-year-old voting issue as well. If they wanted to do this, I believe they could just pass a law in the legislature. They don't need to put it into the Constitution. They could just prohibit it. But by putting it into the Constitution, it goes on the ballot, and you can use the anti-immigration kind of fervor to drum up support at the polls. I think the Republicans are a little bit worried about the polls this year. Tim Ryan is doing quite well, and they're the Republicans are scared, so they're trying to put some red meat out there for the staunch conservatives to get them to come to the polls. It's another product of gerrymandering in this state and remember, lopsided legislature. Remember the thought was that we could have had the mar- uh, marijuana thing on the ballot this year, too, and they stomped that out. So you wouldn't want, you know, liberals to come out to vote for that uh, right. issue. Right. They fought that off. But the people organizing that left themselves vulnerable. I think that'll come later, but... It won't affect the big races on the ballot in November. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The environmental consultant who studied the toxins on the proposed site for a new jail says the only thing that seriously concerns him is benzene. Is that like a doctor saying the only (laughs) part of your health that seriously concerns them is your stage four pancreatic cancer? I mean, doesn't benzene cause cancer? We talked about the toxicity of the site last week, but we've dug a bit deeper. Laura, what did we learn? So this, the vice president of Partners Environmental Consulting Incorporated, walked uh, Cleveland.com reporter Caitlin Durbin through the results of this 338-page environmental study. And one of the money quotes is, this is not a scary property. I don't know. The, the, the word you say, toxins, that automatically makes me afraid of anyone living on it. But um, they say this is, quote, a normal urban redevelopment. But I don't know that most redevelopment projects have to deal with benzene, like you said. And we're not talking about building a Walmart on a garbage dump, which obviously we have done in Cleveland and then closed the Walmart. But we're talking about jail inmates living here for months or years. So any rehabilitation for this site has to take that into account. And they say it's totally doable. You know, you put an... um, a soil cap on, you put this asphalt on, you have vapor barriers, you don't use the groundwater, you have a mitigation system with the air and the HVAC so that it gets released above the jail. 
And all of these things they say could make it very safe. But you know, Caitlin talked to Paul Wright. He's the founder and executive director of the Human Rights Defense Center and an editor of this prison rights publication called Prison Legal News. And he says, if government officials think the land is so safe now, why aren't they building their own government offices on it or residential housing? The answer is obvious. No one given a choice will live there. Well, that, that's the question. Everybody in county government is proposing this. Well, yeah. ask them, would you live there? Would you let your children sleep every night of their childhood in a place where <laughs> if the vapor from the ground gets to them, it can cause cancer? I mean, you talk about the vent. They're going to have to put a pipe from underneath this thing, wrap it around the outside into the roof so that the vapors from all the stuff in the ground goes up. And, you know, th nothing ever goes wrong with these systems. Right. I, I think it, wh what's interesting is these are all people that have a vested interest in cleaning the property. No one in their right mind would willingly live there. You, you just given a choice. Do you want to live on a site where there's benzene in the soil and you have to do mitigation or somewhere where you don't have to do that, especially with your children and your pets? No one's going to live there. And yet we are about to say thousands of people will sleep there. And let's face it, it is largely a black population. So you could argue there's a race element here. Would they be doing this if it were a largely white population? This is Looney Tunes. I just don't get it. I hope at the hearing they have tomorrow, people get up and ask all these proponents of it where they live. Because, you know, in Beechwood, I don't think there's any benzene in the soil under Armin Budish's house. Yeah, and they're definitely not talking about putting a jail in Beechwood, right? Because that's the issue. There's not a lot of space in Cuyahoga County. There's not like big open tracts of land that's like, hey, please build a jail here. So they're looking at this site as like a, you know, something they could use. But We've talked often on this podcast about the jail and what needs to be done to make it a more habitable area, right? The current jail is terrible. It doesn't have natural light. It doesn't allow people to go outside and have a lot of recreation time. And so we're not just talking about putting building on here. Like we're talking about letting these people go outside and have more fresh air. And, and <laughs> that seems more worrisome than being in the building, right? If they're on top of this soil and they, they go through all of the things in the soil, like total petroleum hydrocarbons, which apparently are found in normal soil and groundwater. And the CDC doesn't have regulation or advisory specific on it, but you just start talking about these things and you're like, if there's another choice, why are we specifically talking about this site I, with it, all of these issues? I, I hear from a lot of people, and I'm not hearing from anybody that thinks this is a good idea. At the, what's a little concerning is they, they said a month ago they were going to have a hearing. They wanted to hear from the public. Mm -hmm. But they've set an agenda that makes it look to me like it's more of a sales pitch, that they're going to be trying to convince people who come it's a good idea and less hearing from them. So I suggested this morning we ought to use a timer to see how much of the time at this, if these two hours is spent by public officials bloviating and how much is actually hearing from the public, which is the stated purpose. And Check out I the story. It's on Cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Let's stay with toxic chemicals and the exposure to the public. Where does Ohio rate nationally in exposing people to toxic releases? Lisa, I was not expecting this. I thought the East Coast would be way ahead of us. 
I was surprised as well. Uh, the Ohio is the second most concerning state for toxic chemical risk, second only to Texas, but it's mostly due to a very high score in Lorain County. They, it's the 19th highest county in the USA. So this is, uh, the EPA has what it's called a TRI toxics tracker. It produces a risk score and, you know, it looks at the size of the chemical release, the dispersion pattern, the toxicity of it, the proximity to people and how many people are affected. The higher the score, the more concerned they are about health and environmental effects. It looks at 770 known chemicals. But in Ohio, our median risk score was 13,213 back in 2020, the latest data available. In Lorain County, it was 2.7 million. That's 16% of the total state risk. But Cuyahoga, Franklin, Erie, Lucas, Butler, and Hamilton counties all had scores above 1 million. In seven greater Cleveland counties, there are 348 facilities that are emitting 156 different chemicals for a total of 11.4 million pounds of chemicals released into our atmosphere and, and environment. So I guess, I guess what this is about is what is being released now, not what has been released over the centuries. There was, there was lots of poison in the ground in the East coast, but it was from past sins. This is really measuring the modern sins. What is happening now? Correct. Correct. And even though our score was high, the second highest in the country, it's the least amount of toxins released in the last decade. Back in 2011, Ohio released 20 million pounds of toxins into the air. So we've gone down by about half since then. So I guess it doesn't matter where you build the jail. The inmates are going to be breathing toxins no matter what, because we really aren't doing a very good job regulating this stuff. It sounds like other states are doing a much better job. You are listening to Today in Ohio. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's not every day a former federal prosecutor gets accused of a newsworthy wrongdoing. What does a former intern accuse a former federal prosecutor of doing, leading to the prosecutor leaving his job? Courtney. Yeah, so we learned yesterday about the case of this former assistant U.S. attorney based in Cleveland and Akron, Mark Bennett. He was a U.S. attorney from 07 to 2020. And these incidents that, you know, he, it appears he quit over happened between 2017 and 2019 involving a 24-year-old intern at the office. You know, this complaint that we learned about from the Ohio Disciplinary Council, which is tasked with investigating attorneys, this complaint was filed with the Ohio Board of Professional Conduct, and it told us that Bennett was accused of touching this young woman's breasts at work, sending her sexual messages, asking for nude photos, tried to look up her skirt, made inappropriate comments about her to others in the office. And then also when she was, you know, looking to, at one point she left the office and, and came back. And at one point it, it appears she was looking to move up at the office. 
in those cases, it appeared Bennett was maneuvering for favors, potentially. Um, He'd asked her what she'd be willing to do to get back into the office, asked her what she'd be willing to do to get a letter of recommendation for him. And, you know, according to this account and this complaint, the woman, you know, she sought recommendation letters from other attorneys. She, she, at one point in one period was hiding from Bennett at the office and, and trying to dodge these actions. How did nobody at that office see? I mean, this sounds so over the top obvious. You, you have to think somebody would notice it. And what's amazing is that this is still going on. This never ends well. You're, you're going to get in big trouble. What's he say? Does he, does he defend himself saying it's not true? You know, uh, our reporter, Adam Faris, reached out to his attorney and he really declined to comment on the specific accusations against Bennett. But the attorney did say that it was their hope to retain collegiality throughout the matter. I don't really know what that quote means. And I would think that would go out the window when you're trying to look up people's skirts and assaulting yeah. them. If that is indeed what happened. So All right. collegiality, wrong word, man. It sounds like they need to do a house cleaning over at the prosecutor's office. This is the kind of behavior that just shouldn't be tolerated in any way, shape or form. And, and look, I'm talking to three women when you're young and trying to get into a workplace, this kind of thing could not be more intimidating, right? Oh, well, uh, yeah. yeah. And that's the whole point, course. right? They prey yeah. on people who feel like they don't have a voice and are, it's, it's the authority. It's the power um, vacuum there between the two. Amazing. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What is going on with the Ohio Turnpike? Are we going to get the kind of high-speed, easy-pass lanes you see in other states? Or will Ohioans have to keep driving through the toll gates at slow speed? Lisa, I, I, I have to acknowledge at the front end that the Ohio Turnpike people are being more confusing than we can even explain. We cannot get straight answers, even though we keep trying. And if you look at their website, it's like spaghetti words. It doesn't say anything. It just trails off in a bunch of directions. But I'm asking you to try and give us a little bit of clarity, even though we cannot answer the questions because the Turnpike people are so obtuse. Well, I I think I've got it cleared up, but I could be wrong. Who knows? So basically what's happening is the Ohio Turnpike is, is modernizing all its toll plazas. So what they're going to be doing is they're removing all entrance gates and they're removing all easy pass only exit gates. So these lanes will be converted to electronic tolling so EasyPass customers don't have to stop. There will be a sign that will indicate if their pass was accepted as they're driving by or if they have a low balance on their EasyPass account. So what this will do is reduce the number of toll plazas from 31 to 24. It's going to cost about $232 million to do, and it'll save... $257 million in operating costs over the next 30 years. And they figure that if you're an EasyPass customer, you'll save about an average of 33% on toll rates. So basically what they're doing is they're trying to automate most toll plazas. They're doing this at four right now, Toledo Airport, Swanton uh, State Road 2, Stony Ridge, Toledo State Road 420 and I-280, North Ridgeville and Cleveland at I-480, and Cleveland 
State Road 21 and I-77. If you don't have an easy pass, you can still pay cash or credit. You have to pay attention to the messaging signs so you can indicate and find your correct lane if you're cash or easy pass, you know, or tickets only. So um, I think I made it make sense, did I? So basically what they're doing is they're removing well, gates and making yeah, it automated. but it sounds like... It sounds like they're just removing that little wooden thing or metal thing that rises and goes down, that you're still going to have to drive through it at 10 miles per hour. Where other states, they've gotten rid of that completely. The confusing thing is, is if anybody has driven the turnpike, they've built banks of scanners like they have in other states across the highway that that is for easy pass. And I don't know why, because if you still are going through the toll gates where they're scanning you, why are there scanners on the highway? And those banks of scanners are not in the areas where they're removing them. It's in in the center of the state where they're not getting to it yet. So we keep trying to figure it out. What what are you really doing here? Is is how is all that's changing that when you pull up at 10 miles an hour, you don't stop and wait for the thing to go up and down? Or are you removing the 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 things that make it lanes and you just drive through it slowly. So we're, we'll, we'll come back. We'll, we'll answer, get these questions answered eventually, but they have just done a terrible job of giving you the vision of how this will work. And they, they started this in 2017. Like if you look on their website and I was doing some research on it yesterday um, to modernize the turnpike. And so if you come in from Indiana or from Pennsylvania, at either end of the turnpike, you will no longer have to stop at those like welcome plazas and go through your easy pass where the bar goes up. You'll be able to do the open road tolling there. But I agree, Chris, I am so confused by what I've seen driving the turnpike and then what it means. I mean, like Lisa mentioned, the 480 split there, there's not going to be a a toll. But like, I, I feel like I drove past it not that recently and I didn't see any difference. So we, right. we will that figure we, it out. <laughs> we should be laying, be able to lay this out for people, what to expect and how it works. And we can't because we're still confused. It's today in Ohio. With the dearth of workers, the people running Boston Mills and Brandywine ski slopes last year had shortened hours with no night skiing. What are they promising to do this season to give people their money's worth for those pricey annual passes? You know, Laura, the one you pay for. <laughs> Um, yes. And I do want to tell everyone, by the way, I did not get a chairlift because they went for like 15 to $1,700. But so that was bad news. The good news is that's that we a, are gonna... that, just for my people, they auctioned off a bunch of chairlifts and tin signs that are kind of ugly that went for ridiculous prices, ridiculous amounts of prices. So, you know, that people in Northeast Ohio have a very soft spot for Boston Mills and Brandywine and Alpine Valley. They love them. And the good news is we're going back to normal this year with our hours and just how it works. So they're return, returning to this pre-pandemic hours of seven days a week operations at all three resorts. If you remember last year, they could not get enough workers. And part of that was they weren't paying enough. I think it was like 12 something. And they required their workers to be vaccinated. Well, this year, they're paying that $20 an hour that I kept hammering them for last year because, hey, Cedar Point can do it. The Vail can do it. And no more vaccinations required. So they say they're getting a good number of applicants for these jobs because you cannot run a ski resort if you don't have lift operators. Last year, every time I got picked up in a chair, I was like, thank you for working. I literally told them that because we're so reliant on them. So they're going to have night skiing again. They're going to open the snow tubing that they didn't open at all last year. 
And last year, like the, the times were so wonky. It'd be like 10 to three at one resort one day. And then they'd have no night skiing on the weekends when the teenagers all wanted to go. All of that is back, which is such great news. Did you get any kind of a, of a refund on the price you paid for no. the pass? <laughs> You're so funny. No, this so is bail just... we are talking about. So they cut services. Uh, man, that sounds like... What they but... said is they originally gave 20% off the pass. Um, I think it was last year was the first time they did that. So they were maybe the year before. So they had reduced prices going in. But if you're buying a season pass and you... Even if you're just getting it for just the Ohio resorts, I believe you're paying close to four hundred dollars. And if you want other resorts added on, you're you're paying seven, eight hundred dollars to ski for like a very small amount of time. Usually it didn't open till January seventh last year, which was the weather's fault, not bail. And then they close in mid March. That's not a huge amount of time. Wow. Okay. All right. Well, hopefully it'll be better. Not I hopefully we'll get snow before January. I kind of well, like that. Well, it's supposed to be scenario. a snowy, cold winter, according to the Farmer's Almanac, which yeah, is... Yeah, and we know how accurate that is. <laughs> You're listening to Today in Ohio. We've gone long on a Wednesday. Thanks, Lisa, Courtney, and Laura. Thank you for listening. We'll be back Thursday talking about the latest news.